Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. From KQED. From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, I'm Michael Krasny. With Governor Newsom easing lockdown orders yesterday, some parents and students are daring to hope that schools long shuttered may finally reopen. Most of the Bay Area's public schools have been closed to in-person learning since last March, and the long stretch of remote learning is taking a toll on families. Meanwhile, many private schools and public schools in wealthy districts have been operating in person for months, continuing to widen disparities exacerbated by the pandemic. Coming up on Forum, how and when Bay Area public schools could reopen. That's next, right after this. Welcome to Forum. I'm Michael Krasny. Last month, Governor Gavin Newsom offered $2 billion in grants to schools that begin to open to in-person instruction by mid-February. But many school districts say the financial incentive doesn't get them the support and guidance they need from the state to safely open. And teachers' unions want to see lower COVID rates before going back to the classroom. Meanwhile, students, teachers, and parents are struggling with the many challenges of remote learning. What will it take to get schools reopening again. Joining us, Brent Stevens, superintendent of Berkeley Unified School District. Good morning and welcome. Thank you very much. Good morning. Good to have you with us. Also want to say good morning to Susan Solomon, who joins us as well. She's president of United Educators of San Francisco. Welcome to the program. Thank you very much, Michael. Good to be here. Good to have you with us and also good to have Megan Bacigalupi, who is a parent of two Oakland elementary schools. Uh, children, part of the parent group also called Open Schools California, which advocates for safe reopening of schools and welcome to the program. Thank you, Michael. Good to have all of you. And uh, Brent Stevens, let me begin with you. And let's begin by talking about the fact that your community in Berkeley really appears for all practical purposes after 300 days of uh, being shut down to be very divided, divided on the science and divided on a consensus of reopening. Uh, I think that that's an accurate assessment right now, Michael. Um, there are a variety of viewpoints uh, held by teachers and families about the wisdom of reopening and the timing of reopening. Uh, you know, there are a lot of shared goals. That's both from the Board of Education, myself and parents, that we need to reopen our schools. We recognize that it's better for our students and that what we're currently offering through distance learning um, is both exacerbating inequities, as you've noticed or, uh, noted earlier, um, but it's just not serving the community well. So we... Um, um, you know, appear to be at the beginning of the end right now. Um, we're waiting eagerly to learn more about vaccinations, which we think will likely be a key um, to a different kind of dialogue about reopening, and hope very much that this next period of six to eight weeks, perhaps, um, really makes a key difference and enables us at least to begin to reopen our elementary schools. Will that be perhaps better facilitated by the fact that Governor Newsom has put forward this, uh, well, essentially it's $450 per student for safe schools for all. 
with grants to schools uh, to allow them to do face-to-face -face learning by mid-February? You know, I, I'm not certain of the overall effect of that grant program. The prerequisites for applying for the grant program, I think for Berkeley and most other districts are prohibitively high. Um, they require both that we have signed memorandums of understanding with our unions prior to applying, uh, as well as a fully operational student testing program. And neither one of uh, those things I think is realistic in the roughly three weeks that the governor has permitted school districts to prepare for those prerequisites. Are you also concerned that some of this funding would be for COVID testing or that the state would not necessarily have funding as many feel it should for summer schools or creation of uh, learning recovery programs of some sort or actually money, more money for students with disabilities? Uh, I share those concerns. I know they're being expressed up and down the state by superintendents and other advocacy groups right now, um, that the costs will accrue to school districts independent of whether we can apply for the grant. Um, whether or not we make that particular February 1st deadline, we still need to have testing programs. We still need summer school. We still need remedial opportunities for students. Um, and so those expenses are coming our way. We continue to accrue them. And a grant program that um, sort of stipulates what I think is a, right now an unreasonable timeline um, is likely not going to help in Berkeley, um, the, the cause for reopening schools. Well, we're going to talk to Susan Solomon in a moment with uh, United Educators of San Francisco, but a lot of people have been sort of asserting that the unions are really the big problem here. How do you see it? I, I don't take that particular view. Um, it is true that agreements with labor unions are one really critical aspect of reopening. There have been dozens of prerequisites required of schools up and down the state. Um, we do see that some districts have made faster progress than others. Um, here in the Bay Area, that progress has been slower. Uh, my view and the one that I've expressed with a lot of consistency to the community is that we must work in partnership with our labor unions. Um, they are the folks who um, serve our students most closely and they also bring legitimate concerns about safety and reopening conditions. It's also true just as a matter of pragmatics um, that we must have agreements in order to reopen. And there really is no way forward except to, um, to create these agreements um, to build sort of consensus across all of the parties. And that's ultimately what leads to reopening. I think finger pointing uh, and accusations uh, against any of our labor partners is really um, not constructive to this dialogue. And once again, Brent Stevens is superintendent of Berkeley Unified School District. Susan Solomon is president of United Educators of San Francisco. And Susan, uh, without uh, even acknowledging all the finger pointing that's going to unions, blaming teachers unions for not reopening, I'm just wondering what you say to the notion that one hears about unions, well, obviously concerned about teachers, but talking about not opening until they're in the low risk of the orange tier for a couple of weeks. That's not what health officials are saying needs to be required. That's true. That's not what the health officials are saying. But we know that in San Francisco, as well as in surrounding counties, the um, families and communities who are hardest hit by COVID namely black and brown communities um, are seeing much higher rates of COVID uh, than the rest of um, neighborhoods and communities. And we are emphasizing a lower community spread so that we can mitigate the effects of people being together who are, are in multi-generational households, who um, are um, experiencing, as I said, higher rates of COVID. We want to make sure that safety is first for our, not just for our members and educators, but for our students and their families. 
Well, the teachers may indeed be moving up in the line uh, in terms of vaccinations, and uh, yet there are those who say, for example, I was reading Jill Tucker in the Chronicle, and she was saying moving the teachers up uh, to the front of the line would not be enough really to reopen as far as the unions are concerned, and maybe I ought to get you on record on that. Absolutely. So it's uh, vaccines are certainly um, a major step forward, but they aren't everything. We have... Um, as our unions in San Francisco have consulted with doctors from UCSF who are very clear as are others that we don't drop all of the other necessary precautions because there um, is a vaccine. We still need all of the things that we've needed all along, um, adequate PPE, social distancing, surveillance testing of students and staff, uh, rapid testing for symptoms, people who are exhibiting symptoms of COVID and um, and adequate ventilation, those things don't go away because there's a vaccination. The vaccination is an important additional layer of protection. So when would unions uh, be satisfied with lower uh, COVID rates or how do, they how do you quantify that? I'm asking because as I'm sure you're well aware, there've been studies that have been done and there's a lot of controversy over these studies, but in places like North Carolina, uh, and Texas where there have been low transmission rates uh, and where essentially um, uh, there's been, well, at least at this point, reopening schools with few outbreaks and, and lower transmission. Uh, that's, uh, at least according to many health experts in many different counties in, throughout the country. So I, I will um, say what I said earlier. We lower transmission rates. Um, does well, not excuse me, lower transmission rates in the community at large, really, just to specify what I'm talking about here. So yes, lower transmission rates in the community at large would help greatly in opening schools because, uh, because, because COVID is so contagious and we're seeing variants that indicate that it is more contagious. It means that, uh, that it can travel from school to the community and from the community to schools. And that is why we have an emphasis on lowered community spread and even though we see a trend right now that is promising, we're still in the purple tier. But Susan, forgive me, there are schools that have reopened that have fewer outbreaks and lower transmission rates than the communities at large. Perhaps a better example of that would be in Sweden, um, which is often cited along those lines. But right now we have studies that seem to indicate that and many people point to that as uh, something that really needs to be taken under advisement in a profound way. I would still need to say that all the safety precautions, protocols and practices and uh, sufficient equipment need to be in place. Well, we're talking about reopening schools for in-person learning with Susan Solomon, president of United Educators of San Francisco and Brent Stevens, who's superintendent of Berkeley Unified School District. I'm gonna to go to Megan Bacigalupi, who's a parent of a couple of Oakland elementary school children, part of the parent group Open Schools California, which advocates for safe reopening. It must get uh, you, Megan Bacigalupi, and many who feel the way you do uh, exercised and concerned about the fact that not only uh, are other schools open in wealthier areas uh, than Oakland, I'm talking particularly about places like Palo Alto and Marin County, um, but not necessarily being able to understand why the schools in your community aren't open? Yeah, certainly. I mean, what I'll say, too, I'll just kind of explain, you know, who who we are, Open Schools California, and sort of how this advocacy effort grew, which is um, which is what you're getting to. Um, you know, in my own community here in Oakland, you know, we started, um, you know, 
speaking with the district and our leaders here about reopening back in the fall when our COVID rates were quite low. Um, other districts in the Bay Area and now across California have banded together to form open schools. We um, comprise you know, over 20 districts and growing 10,000 families supporting our group across California. And we really believe, I mean, school is essential. It's a fundamental right for children and distance learning is not an adequate replacement for in-person instruction. I think, you know, most parents are like myself. We got into this because of what's happening in our own homes. Uh, you know, I'll speak for my, myself. I have two young kids. I have a kindergartner and a second grader, both for which, you know, learning virtually is incredibly challenging at best to maintain focus, to stay engaged and be interested in school. I also, my second grader has dyslexia and online learning presents, you know, some pretty unique and challenging circumstances for him. He's already far behind in reading, doesn't qualify for any additional services. And so for me as a parent, seeing what's happened the past nine months with my own children, you know, got me engaged in this movement and involved. And, and you know, I think that's why, you know, all of us as parents, as you, as you mentioned, we're looking not just across the country. We look in Marin, we look on the peninsula. There are school districts in California who have done this meaning it is no longer an issue of whether it can be done. It's a it's an issue of a lack of political will here in California and in the Bay Area. All right, I want to thank you for that, Megan, and uh, give listeners an opportunity to weigh in here. Are you a student, a parent, or a teacher? We want to hear from you. Are you eager to have schools reopen? And uh, for that matter, are you reluctant to return? Give us a call, and you can do that now at our toll-free number. The number to call is 866-733-6786. Again, join us toll-free at 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum or email us, forum at kqed.org. We'll be back in about 60 seconds. Stay where you are. I'm Michael Krasny. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. This is Forum. I'm Michael Krasny. We're talking about reopening schools for in-person learning. Brent Stevens is with us, superintendent of Berkeley Unified School District. Susan Solomon also with us, president of the United Educators of San Francisco. And Megan Bacigalupi, who is a parent of a couple of Oakland Elementary School children and part of the parent group Open Schools California, which advocates for advocates, excuse me, for the safe reopening of schools and Listener named Scott sends this email asking, why is it that many states have had schools reopen for months, even during large community outbreaks like our current one in California and stayed open without experiencing outbreaks or seeing infections rise at the school among students or staff? And Megan Bacigalupi, I imagine that's a question your group is asking. Certainly. I mean, I touched on this, but, you know, I think if you look across the, the country at districts that are open and those that are not, it comes down more to a political climate than it does to COVID rates. Um, you know, there are certainly districts across the country which, you know, currently have higher rates, you know, than we do here in the Bay Area, which thankfully are decreasing by the day, which is, I think, good news. We should all applaud. 
but you know this can this can be done safely. Um, you know, certainly, I think Susan Solomon spoke to the need, you know, beyond vaccines for other mitigation efforts. I mean, you know, we keep hearing this. If you know, specifically here in Oakland, I actually checked this morning. You know, our district has a dashboard which shows where they are in terms of all the PP and other requirements. With over half the things that are at hundred percent, there are at least eight more that are above ninety. I mean, most of the most of the needs regarding safety are completed, um, and you know, I it just it feels to us like the goalposts keep shifting, and I think that's why it's been so frustrating for parents, and likely probably for leaders in some of these districts who are putting forth you know massive efforts and expense to to meet you know, mitigation needs, which public health officials say are required, which of course we support. But then, you know, at what point is sort of enough enough? Like we 100% support teachers being vaccinated now as, as quickly as they can be. But if that's not enough, like what's next? Uh, you know, I think we need to be guided by public health. You know, um, Jean Noble, who heads the UCSF COVID response, you know, penned an op-ed last week with 30 physicians here, saying that schools should reopen February 1st, that it can be done safely. I think those are the types of individuals we need to be listening to here. All right. Well, I want to hear from another individual who sees things very differently than you do, and that's John Jones, who's a parent of a kindergartner in the Oakland public school system. And John Jones, welcome to the program. Good to have you with us. Thank you. Welcome. Good morning. Happy New Year to everybody. Well, Happy New Year to you, too. Um, want, want to find out why you are reluctant to have your uh, kindergartner back in school and why you want uh, the schools to pretty much stay safe uh, in any way possible and not reopen. Oh, yes. And just for a few key reasons. Uh, the first starts with uh, we live in East Oakland and my six year old attends school in East Oakland, which has been hit disproportionately hard uh, by the virus. And upon hearing news that there is uh, research indicating that there's a new strain in the state of California, I just think right now is not the time to reopen schools. And, and long story short, we have a few more months left of school. So it's just important to do everything correctly, do it the right way, and most importantly, make sure that everyone is safe. And yet at the same time, there are schools that are open and they seem to be doing okay in terms of uh, lower transmission rates, uh, particularly when they're put up against the transmission rates in the community and all of those kinds of things. And uh, some of these states, uh, I might add, in fact, more red states, uh, are uh, have been open for quite a while and uh, the transmission rates have not necessarily gone up that much yes that's actually true in fact uh, to that point i've also read uh, various reports that showed uh, not just in america but across the planet uh places that did reopen schools and then there were higher transmission rates which uh you know required them to close it down so at this point uh at this stage at where we all are at i just think it's just so important to stay the course and John, do your friends and family feel the same way you do? Or is there a debate in the community over there in East Oakland? Uh, with my family members, no. Uh, I have many relatives who have kids in school. And our primary concern is the safety of not just our children, but our extended family members as well. Well, I appreciate your being with us, and I thank you for joining us. And again, that's uh, John Jones, who's parent of a kindergartner in the Oakland public school system. And again, we do want to hear from you. In fact, a lot of people are lining up here. Uh, you can join us not only by phone, toll-free at 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch with us on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum or email us 
forum at kqed.org. Let me read an email from Jennifer who writes, we know that the social and emotional piece of learning is essential for proper childhood and adolescent development. Why can't some activities like sports and clubs be resumed in socially distanced ways? For example, pools and tennis courts in Berkeley remain open, like at the Berkeley Swim Club and the Claremont Hotel. Why can't tennis and swim teams be resumed? Let me go to you on that question, if I may, Brent Stevens. Uh, sure, I'd be happy to talk about that. We um, currently have permission to uh, engage in those kinds of activities here in Berkeley. We are running a whole set of sports teams. Um, we have permissions that fall in line with the county tiering system. And, and so have been operating athletic conditioning camps now for months, um, have just started in the last week a whole series of new sports activities. The challenge that we run into over and over again is staffing, um, just plain and simple. It's been very difficult to recruit our own staff to work in these um, in-person in environments. And even as we look to develop partnerships with other organizations, community-based organizations that might have staff, uh, we have over and over again uh, found that there's just a shortfall of folks through the course of the pandemic who are willing to work in person with students. And a question, if I may, uh, for you, Susan Solomon. So again, Susan Solomon's president of United Educators of San Francisco, a listener named Bart says, I've heard that some teachers are not willing to return to in-person learning, even if vaccinated with the vaccine offering 90 to 95 percent protection and more than 99 percent with a mask. Why is that not considered to be sufficient protection for some, especially when taking into account the harm we are causing to our children by these school closures close to a year now, a sad world record? Susan? We, um, as the Union of Educators in San Francisco, have had, in fact, we have not taken the position that we will not go back. There may be individuals who don't wish to go back. Uh, the, the position of UESF is when the, um, the controls are in place, the safeties are in place, including one I didn't list earlier, which is small, stable cohorts of students um, and workers determined for each school site. Uh, and yes, the vaccine offers a layer of protection. So we are open to these discussions. We are not refusing to return. And just a quick question about uh, one of the criticisms that's come down on the unions is that uh, they're not necessarily doing enough uh, where remote learning is, or distance learning is concerned, uh, and particularly in uh, improving distance learning. I find that to be um, untrue in San Francisco. Educators are working very hard, not just at um, distance learning, but looking at ways to improve distance learning. We also have members who are do taking on other responsibilities to help make this a very terrible experience of the pandemic better for families. We have educators who go to students' homes to deliver food for the families, to deliver uh, curriculum materials and supplies, and are working very hard to do uh, what's best. And just last week, the Board of Education in San Francisco convened a meeting about, and how do we improve crisis distance learning together, working together? And there are ways to do it, and we're constantly looking at ways to improve. And once again, Susan Solomon is president of the United Educators of San Francisco. I want to read an email from a listener named Rohini. Uh, it's a kind of warning flare that I think needs to be 
understood. Uh, Rohini writes, as an ER doctor in Oakland, I am seeing more and more kids coming in suicidal every shift. The child's psych beds are full, but these are the lucky kids who found us before it was too late. I know COVID firsthand and it's scary, but these kids are equally scary. Why such impossibly stringent reopening expectations? Shouldn't there be a give? And let me bring callers on here. We'll begin with a Berkeley caller. Shailene joins us. Shailene, good morning. Good morning. I'm calling because I am a parent of a kindergartner in the Berkeley district. I'm also a physician working front lines, taking care of patients in the hospital with COVID. I think one of the things I found really difficult in this discussion is that there are no options offered to families for whom distance learning is failing. We talk a lot about equity in this community, but equity doesn't involve offering the exact same thing to everyone. It means meeting people where their needs are. Right now, the district is offering only distance learning to all students, including the students who are showing up in our hospital EDs with suicidal ideation, including the students that are failing, including students that can't manage distance learning, and especially families that can't manage it. As an essential worker, a family of two essential workers, neither of us can facilitate distance learning for our child, and we've had to pay out of pocket. We're lucky to be able to afford that, and many people can't. Why isn't the district considering in-person options as soon as possible for the families for whom distance learning is failing? Shailene, I thank you for that question. I'm going to go back to you, Brent Stevens, if I may. Sure. Yeah, I, I first want to acknowledge the seriousness of the situation that Shailene is describing. Um, I, like others, read the New York Times article on Sunday about suicidality, and we've been following this very closely here in Berkeley for some time and been very concerned. Um, we agree that the, the current county guidelines about reopening are stringent enough, and that's why we're asking that we return. And we also agree that we need to be um, offering options for our families. In Berkeley, um, we made an effort beginning in November to uh, recruit volunteer staff and open up cohort support programs for the students, precisely like the ones that Shailene is describing. Um, we were successful in opening three of our elementary schools up with uh, uh, what I would say is a very modest program. Uh, and we really did max out on the available volunteer staff, both our own volunteer staff and those we could find from other partner organizations. Uh, and at this point, um, we've sort of exhausted the opportunity for volunteer efforts and feel that the only way forward is to ask that our staff return uh, at the point that we've satisfied those state level uh, requirements. And let me thank Shailene for the call and go right to another caller. And the next caller who's joining us is Sandro from Oakland. Sandro, good morning. Good morning. Thanks for taking my call. Sure. Uh, so I, I have a question. We, I have been following this for uh, a number of months. And what we've noticed is that the there's a significant difference between the district and the teachers union in terms of the way they interpret the public health guidance. And I guess my question really is for Susan, and why is it that teachers unions seem to be having their own uh, set of facts that they're referring to and not deferring to public health authorities who are supposed to be looking out for the best interests of the entire community? Thank you for that question, Sandra. It was kind of what I was implying in my question to you before, Susan Solomon. Could you answer that directly, please? Right. So we, we actually do not have our own set of facts. We are following the guidelines from uh, the CDC, Cal OSHA, the California Department of Public Health Standards. All of those are included in um, our proposals about health and safety. So uh, we do want what's best not minimal standards. We want what's best 
for students and um, our staff in schools. And Megan Bacigalupi, let me go back to you for a moment here. There's a tweet from a listener I'd like to get your response to. This listener writes, I don't understand this discussion. We are approaching a half million dead Americans until we get this virus under control. We need to just sit tight and wait. Parents see how challenging it is for students. Try teaching remotely. Your thoughts, Megan Bacigalupi? Yeah, so what I would say, I mean, uh, you know, Shailene and others have alluded to this, but I mean, there is a crisis going on here, both mental health, physical health with children. I think we have to look at this from a harm reduction. Of course, COVID has been devastating to families and communities. I mean, many people listening today have likely lost loved ones. We are not, you know, minimizing the harm that has happened. But what we are asking is, again, look around the country, look around, look to Marin County. This can be done safely. And I think the risk, especially to children, is so low with proper mitigation in place that I, you know, we we have to get the kids back in school again. You know, uh, Shailene talked about it and she's there on the front lines. But if you look you know, it's CDC reports about ER visits for mental health emergencies for kids. Again, Brent talked about the New York Times story this weekend. I mean, these are horrific stats for our children, not to mention just depression, anxiety, obesity, all these things that are that we're seeing in children that were not here nine months ago. So, um, you know, I think looking at that, of course, we can do this safely while we are still in the midst of this pandemic. It is only a matter of lack of political will and leadership. We here in the Bay Area, you know, we have every district in Assembly Member Wicks and State Senator Skinner's districts. We want to speak with them. We need leadership from Gavin Newsom. I think, you know, even, you know, Governor Newsom and President Biden always say, follow the science. You can't cherry pick that. If you want us to listen to, and we agree, listen to what Dr. Fauci is saying, listen to what the CDC is saying, schools can be reopened safely. You then cannot have a carve out for teachers unions and the reopening process that then doesn't follow what our public health scientists are saying. I have to insert just a thought here for a moment because uh, Marin County is often mentioned, but it's a very different scale and it's an affluent community and you don't have that many essential workers as you do certainly in Oakland and uh, and in Berkeley, for that matter, uh, that has to be, I think, taken into consideration as well. But I want to bring another caller in from Berkeley, and that's Mara. Mara, join us. Good morning. Um, good morning. Uh, thanks, everyone. Um, I have two kids, one in second grade, one in fifth grade in Berkeley. My daughter in second grade, the day after school was over in the spring, had a breakdown and another psychological breakdown the day she found out that schools were not going to be reopened on October 13. Um, I want to acknowledge the fear and the complexities of this unprecedented situation, and yet I am appalled that logistics and proceduralism are eclipsing what it is the ultimate priority, and that is kids in school and public education as a fundamental right. Mara, I hope I things go. That. I'm sorry. I'm just going to say I hope things go better with your daughter. I'm sorry to hear about what she's going through. Yeah, thank you so much. Yes, we took care of it, but we have to take care of it outside the school because we requested services and we couldn't get them in time. And then eventually, we did. So what I want to say is that the price of education and equity means absolutely nothing if schools do not open full time. And this acknowledging the option of distance learning for those with particular conditions. The risk 
is not weighed against the harm to kids. This that, should be the priority, and is not. Let me thank you for that call, Mara. I want to hear from somebody uh, who, again, takes a different position. Again, it shows that uh, it's very hard to come to consensus on this. Uh, Oakland caller, Hoel, joins us. Hoel, welcome. You're on the air. Good morning. Uh, thank you very much, Michael. Um, I just want to say, as the parent of a middle school student here in Oakland, a public school student here in Oakland, I'm just flabbergasted as to um, the conversations that we're having. We literally just had the worst day of COVID deaths last week. Um, we're dealing with this UK variant now uh, here in the United States that is just slammed places like uh, the country of Ireland, which tried to keep schools open last year, really pushed hard, and it's even some of the lit from some of the reopened groups as to what, uh, a success story. And yet, because of how hard they have been slammed, they are now closing schools. They've closed schools because of how hard it's being slammed. The new variant in Los Angeles, you know, which is the reason for the surge there. Uh, I mean, we're in California. We share a same state. We're going to get overwhelmed. And the vaccine rollout, though uh, President Biden's uh, plan is ambitious, is not going to go fast enough. We have, um, we have folks literally advocating to put people on the front line, to put teachers on the front line, to put school staff on the front line, many of whom are parents as well, and it doesn't make any sense. And OUSD last year, the end of last year, put out a flawed survey, and it's flawed admittedly, self-admittedly, because they acknowledged how flawed it was with the lack of responses from brown and black communities and the overwhelming responses from richer, whiter communities. And it said that those brown and black families didn't want to reopen public schools. They didn't want to return to in-person teaching because of the, even though that they were the communities, that we are the communities that are most affected by the ravages. Of oh, well, I'm going to have to leave it there. I've got to go to a break, but I thank you for the call. We'll return. We'll hear from more of you. This is Forum. I'm Michael Krasny. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. And this is Forum. I'm Michael Krasny. We're talking about reopening schools for in-person learning with Megan Bacigalupi of Open Schools California, Susan Solomon of the United Educators of San Francisco, and Brent Stevens, who is superintendent of Berkeley Unified School District. And Brent, I wanted to ask you about reopening discussions. Are there going to be options for parents who don't want to send their kids back to school to continue to do remote learning? Uh, There will be, Michael. In fact, that is a requirement right now that the state has um, asked of all school districts in California that there be a meaningful option available to families that would not choose uh, to return to schools. And it's part of what makes this um, reopening discussion complex. 
Um, we don't have an expanded number of teachers to be able to serve in two modes simultaneously. So everything that we do sort of has to account both for the rules imposed by county health officials and for the desires of our community, some of whom will stay home. Um, I do want to say I, I think that there's a, you know, a trajectory here that we can follow that is sticking to the county health guidelines about reopening thresholds and using the availability of the vaccine, hopefully in the coming four to six weeks, uh, to really unlock this conversation about school reopening. Um, I agree with the folks who have said that vaccines really do um, offer an added level of protection. And with that level of protection, it feels very reasonable um, that we could move in that period of time, four to six weeks, towards at least a reopening or an option to come back to school for elementary families. Let me go back to you, Susan Solomon, uh, about reopening. I mean, it's going to have to be negotiated via collective bargaining, and there are some who say that case rates would be really the best criterion. Uh, I'm wondering what would be the reaction of the union uh, or unions, in your judgment, uh, if we saw one size fits all, if we saw a mandate simply to open the schools? I think that could be very harmful. Uh, and, you know, I do want to pause for a moment and say we very much recognize how extraordinarily this dif difficult this is for families and for students. Uh, you know, we have to keep in mind that many people who work in schools also have children and they are seeing their children have a struggle. But we're also seeing um, over 400,000 deaths in the country. And it's a difficult, difficult time. Um, and and we continue, what we are seeing is an exacerbation of years of under-resourcing of California schools. And uh, it, it has just been made worse. So I don't know that a one-size-fits-all would work. I mean, you gave a very good example, Michael, of how different it is in Marin, where schools are funded at a much higher level than here in San Francisco. So. Uh, not quite sure what a one-size-fits-all would look like, but uh, we also need to keep in mind many factors um, that are that impact us because we are an, uh, an urban community with uh, people who are living in dire, low-income situations. There's food scarcity. There's a fear, a very real fear of evictions if we don't get an extension of eviction protection by the end of this month, and uh, similar to what uh, a, a parent said, um, the, the last parent who spoke, the parent survey that was done in San Francisco indicated a low percentage of black and brown families relative to other families who want to, uh, who feel safe sending their kids back. Also, um, uh, Asian American families as well, a very low percentage because of the concerns. Uh, that means we do have to all work together to figure out if we can't bring all students back right now, what can we do better? How can we be creative working together to address the social emotional needs in addition to the academic needs of students? And we, as mentioned earlier, we do have educators who are reaching out to families, uh, not just during work time, but on their own time to figure out how to um, assist them more. And since you were talking again about uh, really the monetary gap between some schools and other schools, uh, I'm going to read an email from Elisa who writes, why have private schools been able to stay open during these outbreaks despite increased transmission rates in the community? Why have our communities decided it's acceptable to have a two-tiered system where wealthier families get to send their kids to school, but 
Public school students must remain at home. The Bay Area seems to be promoting the idea of buying access and services, including in education. And Megan Bacigalupi, I'm going to go back to you with a email from a listener named Will who says, well, I understand the burden of school closure on parents and children. As a spouse of a master educator, I cannot support reopening when safety equipment and protocols are inconsistently applied and available. I'm especially concerned that opening with more virulent mutations of the virus invading us is ill-advised. Now, those are two arguments that uh, I think are salient, and I'd like your response, Megan. Uh, I mean, not only the, the lack of PPE and equipment that's necessary, but also uh, these variants that we're seeing now. So, you know, I mean, I, I'm not a physician or a public health expert, so I'll leave that for others to discuss about the new variant. What I can say about, you know, safety and PPE, again, I mean, I talked about this here in Oakland where I'm focused, but, you know, Brent could talk about what's happening in his district. I mean, our, you know, our district has PPE at every school and a warehouse filled with enough for the remainder of the year. I mean, at least that's what they say on their dashboard. And, you know, that that's the tip of the iceberg in terms of safety. But again, we keep hearing these calls for, you know, from, you know, people who are resistant to go back or unions that it's, you know, that these measures aren't in place and they are because public health experts have said they must be and the districts have listened. Um, you know, the other thing I will say is, you know, you, Michael, you mentioned Marin County is not totally analogous, analogous to Oakland, and I agree. However, you know, we have districts in New York City, in Providence, Rhode Island, that are open. They have been open. So it, it does seem to be its political will and its leadership that is the difference here in opening schools. You know, the governor of Rhode Island uh, you know, made that a priority to have schools open. And of course, the situation in New York City is different with the, you know, mayor having more control. But again, it was a priority to get the kids in school and to get them back quickly when they even close them. Um, you know, some of those communities have had worse pandemic impacts than ours here in the Bay Area. And so I think, you know, it does, again, it comes down to this issue of leadership. We are in an extraordinary moment and it's demanding extraordinary leadership. And I'm going to bring another caller on here. Rainbow joins us next from Berkeley. Good morning. Good morning. Thanks so much for everybody's hard work on this. I know it's a very divided issue. I'm a public health scientist and a mother of a BUSD kindergartner, and I'm just shocked at the lack of evidence-based action in our community. Here we are with UC Berkeley being a scientific leader in the world and our city, the public health department, with clear guidance on how to open safely. We just need masks and air filters in rooms and some open windows, and that confers more more protection than vaccines, and we're still not opening. Teachers' unions are making demands that aren't in line with public health guidance despite low community transmission, including that they won't go back even after vaccines. Online learning is no substitute for in-person education. Children are suffering, and the risks of schools being closed far outweigh the risk of schools being open. The response from the other side is that this, this is difficult. This isn't just difficult. This is unscientific, and parents need to stop if they want to see schools open this fall. Right, I thank you, Rainbow, for that call. Good to hear from you. I'm going to go back to Brent Stevens again. Brent Stevens is superintendent of Berkeley Unified School District, and I want to find out your thoughts about teachers who have health concerns uh, in terms of, well, the whole discussions that are going on about reopening, Brent. Uh, yeah, I appreciate the question and good morning to you, Rainbow. It's nice to hear from you. Um, you know, we've had a, a, a clear process here in Berkeley that conforms to uh, the Americans with Disabilities Act to uh, accept requests from teachers and all members of our staff who have underlying health conditions uh, that they could apply for a work from home accommodation. 
Um, uh, we have been going through that process now for many months um, and have been through interactive conversations with each individual employee, uh, agreeing to accommodations that take into account these, these special health circumstances. So in my mind, this has um, been a relatively clear-cut aspect of working with individual employees, and it's distinct from these larger conversations about reopening thresholds for all teachers. And I'm going to bring another caller on. Mari joins us next. Mari, welcome. Mari's from Oakland. Good morning. with spam by means necessary and I just think it is not safe to reopen schools. Um, children can be asymptomatic and spreading COVID in school and back home. Um, there have been 530 teachers who died from COVID last year according to the Washington Post. In California alone there have been more than 350,000 children that have tested positive for COVID according to East Bay Times. And here in Berkeley, there have been several positive cases of COVID at the Berkeley Elementary Schools that have reopened. Um, there have been two positive cases at Malcolm X Elementary Schools in Berkeley, and the parents were not notified about these positive cases until after the Thanksgiving break. And there are some parents that still don't know. I know that staying home is hard, but no child will ever get over the trauma of knowing that they potentially were the one that was responsible of spreading COVID and possibly killing a family member. And we can prevent that by keeping the schools closed. There's no compromising with this virus. It's not safe to reopen just to reopen the economy. It's and we, can, we have to keep our children and our families and teachers safe and keeping the schools closed is the way to do that. I thank you for the call and appreciate your passionate concerns. And uh, I want to get another caller on right away, and that's Rebecca in Windsor. Rebecca, join us, please. Good morning. Good morning. Um, I'm halfway listening in, halfway in a meeting, so I turned off the listening, and I am calling. I am a parent of a 12-year-old um, who has a genetic syndrome. She's severely handicapped, and she has not she was just able to start getting services um, just because basically I th- had to uh, threaten the school district with a lawsuit. Um, so she was just able to go back to school last week, but she's the only child at her school. Um, and I think there's a huge misconception. First of all, I know people all over the country and all over the state whose children, special ed, are getting served. It is and, and they haven't had, you know, it, schools have been serving vulnerable students safely all over the country and all over the state. Um, I know many, many people who have children with a syndrome just like hers and their kids have been getting served um, definitely since the start of the school year, if not last spring. And the misconception is that we're not allowed to serve anyone, that we have to be, you know, this all or nothing shutdown um, the governor said in August that vulnerable students could be seen. That includes English learners, foster youth, and special ed. And these students have not been receiving services, and, and it's against the law. They are unable to get their IEP goals met in distance learning, and it is an absolute travesty that our school districts are refusing to serve these students. It's, it's causing major stress. Not only are these children regressing socially and academically, but it is causing major stress on their families because there are absolutely no supports in our society. We have been left out to dry and work and care for our children, and it is an absolute travesty. 
Rebecca, we I understand. are allowed to serve them. We are I, just choosing not to. I've been reading a lot uh, about what you've just raised with respect to not only children with disability, but homeless children, English learners, and so forth. And uh, I, I don't know if it's if it's really too uh, hyperbolic to say so many of them have been left out in the cold and they're really regressing uh, and uh, standing still and not moving forward. And it, it's it's a terrible tragedy. And I. I thank you for that call. Uh, here's a listener, Emily, who writes, I'm a doctor. Since when are teachers not essential workers? Move them up in line to get the vaccination, fit test them with proper N95 masks, get them a face shield, test them weekly, and get them back into the classroom. There's another listener who writes, I'm a mental health therapist in a San Mateo County public school, and I deeply appreciate the need for students to return to in-person learning. I've had to initiate more hospitalizations for kids with suicidal ideation this school year than in the last five combined, but I don't want to put my family and my life at risk. I have an infant son who is immune compromised and parents I take care of who are 75 plus, both cancer survivors. Even if I get vaccinated, the fear of transmitting something back to my family makes the risk of returning to in-person learning not worth it for me. It feels like an impossible situation. And Monique writes, as a public school teacher in Marin County, I can attest the only reason why we are open is because of money. Our district has been able to spend twice as much as what the government gave us in PPE money to create an environment where teachers feel somewhat comfortable coming back. And let me bring on... Um, Bring you back into this discussion, Megan Bacigalupi. Uh, you understand uh, these concerns that parents have, and their deep concerns. I wonder what you say to them, especially those parents who say, "I'm really afraid of putting my kids back in school. I'm afraid of the effect it'll have on my elderly parents who I'm taking care of, or I'm afraid, frankly, that they will simply come back with the virus to our home." And uh, just wonder what you what you say to them in terms of your argument that the schools need to be reopened. Yeah, and I mean, I, you know, I think um, Superintendent Stevens alluded to this too. I mean, families will have an option. You know, while we are in this pandemic, of course, there are like, you know, the emailer just wrote in, there will be situations in people's homes, uh, which will, you know, they would prefer to keep their kids in distance learning. I think, of course, then, you know, the argument then goes to, well, is, is you know, distance learning is clearly not as effective as in person. And so districts and unions are going to have to come to a decision about how you can, if you can, improve that for families who choose to, who choose to remain in distance learning. What I will say is, and we've heard this from numerous callers and people have emailed in today, school is a refuge for many kids, whether it's, you know, children with disabilities, uh, you know, children who, who are, you know, in incredibly isolated right now. And so schools are a safe place for so many kids before the pandemic. It, and we can also send them back safely now. So we can give families the option to do so. And again, for those who choose to keep their kids home, they will be able to do that. All right, I want to hear actually from a listener whose kids are in school, and that's up in Napa. Christina joins us from Napa Valley. Christina, good morning. Hi, how are you? Okay, and your school's been opening, huh? Yes, our, our school district opened in October last year. They did so with many, many measures in place, safety measures in place. We've been successfully open now for a few months. And it's a positive experience. Our children needed to go back to school. I have two seven-year-olds who were just not at all succeeding in distance learning. And the school and the district have done so many things. Um, so many measures are in place, so many guidelines. The children are thriving, and it's a safe environment. And I think for the mental well-being, it was very much the right decision. Even when the cases spiked, 
the district stayed on board and continued to keep the school safe. And so I really think that while people are afraid for schools to open and their kids to go back to school, schools are not super spreaders. And I think a school can do it successfully. And I, I think that the fear needs to be balanced by the reality of schools are successfully opening. Well, I thank you for that call. And it's good to hear from you, Christina. We've got very little time left, but important question for you, Susan Solomon, from a listener named Lita, who says, in this discussion, it seems like teachers union representative is prioritizing teacher safety over genuine harm to kids. Is anyone listening to the medical professionals? Why is this huge uptick in mental health crisis acceptable? Susan it's Solomon. not acceptable. It's not acceptable. But what what is unacceptable is um, and, and the multiple truths existing at the same time, we have to acknowledge what's unacceptable is the horrible lack of leadership that we had um, at the federal level for the last four years and including during COVID. So much of this could have been prevented with supports from our federal government and our state government. And we could have had resources that we needed based on the percentage of the population in the United States compared to the rest of the world, our, this was from, directly from Dr. Fauci, our so, um, share, if you will, of deaths from COVID should have been around 80,000. And it's five times that. We'll have and to leave so it there. Susan Solomon, let me thank you for being with us this hour. Uh, Susan Solomon, again, is president of United Educators of San Francisco. Thanks to Brent Stevens, superintendent of Berkeley Unified School District. And thanks to both Megan Bacigalupi and John Jones, parents of children in the Oakland school system. And thanks to you, our listeners. We wouldn't be here without you. And if you have thoughts about what you hear on Forum or would like to hear, email them to us, forum at kqed.org. And stay tuned for another hour of Forum with Mina Kim. And for all of us here at KQED Public Radio, thanks for listening. And please stay safe. I'm Michael Krasny. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.